neighbor, and welcome today to another podcast episode of Established in the Faith. This is Pastor James Pierce, and what a privilege it is to have all of you out there by SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Blueberry, and others. We're just so very pleased and happy to have you with us today. We're going to continue with our study in the book of Revelation. I know it's going to be a blessing to you. If it is, like it and share it with others. You can also go over to establishedinthefaith.com, and if you go there, you'll find more information on how you can subscribe to this podcast as well. We love hearing from you, so please feel free to contact us with any questions and comments that you may have. Well, we're going to go on into the program now, picking it up in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, dealing with the church at Pergamos. Hope and pray it'll be a blessing to you. tonight turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we've been dealing with the churches. Tonight we're going to deal with the third church that the Lord spoke to in the book of Revelation, the church at Pergamos. Revelation chapter 2, if you will, move down to verse 12. And the Lord said... And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication." So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, And will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Like I said, we have looked at two churches. Tonight we're looking at Pergamos. There were three cities that were royal cities in the Roman Empire. The first was Ephesus. Ephesus was the great political center. The second is Smyrna, the great commercial center. And now we're looking at Pergamos, the great religious center. Pergamos was an inland city about 65 miles north of where Smyrna was at. And they had some of the most temples and they had some of the largest temples of any of the cities in that part of the world. I don't have the time to go into all of the different temples 
that they had, but I do want to take a look at three of the most outstanding temples that they had. Uh, First of all, we had the great altar of Zeus with an idol on it that was located near the palace of the king. And I don't know if any of you know anything about Greek mythology or not, but Zeus is what they call the god of the gods or the uh, god of the sky. He was supposed to be the head honcho, Zeus was. Of course, we know better than that, don't we? Uh, the second one I want to mention is the Temple of Dionysius. It was built in honor of Bacchus, the goat god, the god of wine and alcohol. He is depicted with the upper body of a man with horns and uh, while his lower body is that of a goat with cloven feet and a tail. Does that sound familiar to you? It's where we get our modern image or what we think of Satan as being. The goat god. Also known as the god of wine and alcohol. You see the connection there. I know uh, I heard a preacher today over radio talking about there wasn't anything wrong with taking a drink and you you can use it in your communion services and so on and, and so forth and he didn't see anything wrong with it. And y'all know what wine is. It's It's grape juice that's fermented and it's getting rotten or whatever the case what does that wine stand for in our communion the blood of jesus christ do you think the lord would have took something that is fermented something that's going to the bad to represent his perfect precious blood i don't think so But at any rate, that's what this particular preacher was advocating and whatever the case. But I think him being the god of wine and looking like this goat beast, a perfect image of what we consider Satan to be. Now, how many of you know Satan don't really look like that? He don't have the body of a man and the lower parts of a goat and a tail with pitchforks. He don't, he don't look like that. It's just Greek mythology, what they depict him looking like or whatever the case. But Satan really don't look like that. We know in the beginning he was created a perfect angel and he fell from grace. Iniquity was found in him and uh, the Lord kicked him out of heaven. And uh, he, don't, he don't have that appearance like he used to have. But uh, at any rate, let's take a look at the next temple that uh, I thought was somewhat outstanding. Um, It was to the god of Eclipius. What in the world is that? It is the serpent god. This particular temple was also the hospital. It was known for its healing practices. 
And you would go there and their claims were, no matter what your problem is, you come in here and you'll be healed by it. And they practiced all kind of methods, including psychology. They give you the shock treatment when everything else fell. Were you like, well, Brother James, you mean they had electricity back in those days? No, they didn't have electricity back then, but they did have a shock treatment. And their shock treatment was they would lock you up in that temple overnight and turn loose all the snakes and let them crawl all over you all night in the dark. And if that didn't put a shock in your system... The shock treatment. There's one thing about it. When you come out of there, you didn't claim to have no more problems because you didn't want to go back in there and spend no more time with the snakes. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't come back out. But see, the other thing is they had a back door to the temple, and that's where they carried those that didn't survive the shock treatment. You got healed one way or the other. <laughs> but, of course, they did not make known to the public those that didn't make it, they only reported the successful cases. But at any rate, this particular temple here was to the serpent god. Health care back in those days was satanic, in other words. Kind of where our own health care is kind of headed today. But uh, I'm not going to go there. At least not too much anyway. Now, I said all of that. I mentioned these three temples. Zeus, the goat god, the god of wine and alcohol, and this temple to the serpent god. Because Jesus makes the statement when he speaks to the church in this area. Verse 13, he said, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And the latter part of that verse says, where Satan dwelleth. Any religion that does not have Jesus Christ and Him crucified as the foundation is not of God. It's of Satan, pure and simple. So it was in this area, this city of Pergamos, that God placed His church. It was a real, general, literal church there in this area. But not only was the Lord speaking to the church of that day, but it was also a foreshadow of something that was to come a couple hundred years down the road. The church at Pergamos represents a time period in our church history from 300 to 500 A.D., and it all began with a man by the name of Constantine. And Constantine was an emperor and he had several conflicts with some others competing for the imperial throne. And he had a dream one night. And in that dream he saw a cross with the words emblazoned across it in this symbol, thou shalt conquer. And immediately after having this dream, 
the very next Sunday, he walks into the church and he joins the church. Constantine being a political leader, joining the church with all of his political power, he put a stop to persecution. He literally ended the Smyrna church period, which was a church period in history where the Christians were being persecuted, made them go in. If you don't pay tribute to Caesar, if you don't come in and, and to the temple and offer up the incense to the altar of Caesar, you had your head cut off. The choice was yours. And... uh A lot of Christians were persecuted during that time. But when Constantine joined the church, he put a stop to persecution. Actually, he took it a step further and made the church, he made Christianity the religion of the state. He made Christianity the religion of the state. Of the Roman Empire. He called a conference. The first church conference. 318 bishops attended that particular uh, conference. And Constantine walks down the aisle... In this conference, arrayed with all of his royal robes, and the people stood in mass, cheering and clapping. They considered Constantine, listen to this now, catch this. They considered Constantine to be a spiritual leader. But he knew absolutely nothing about the word of God, but they considered him to be a spiritual leader because of his political power. He had put a stop to persecution and had made Christianity the state religion. It's very accepted now to be called a Christian. And they applaud such. And standing back from the outside, looking at it in the natural, you would think, oh boy, we have finally arrived. It looks like a great day for Christianity. But really, it wasn't. What Satan could not do with an outward attack against the church using persecution, he now does his greatest destruction inside the church with leadership that does not know the Word of God. And that's why Jesus said in verse 12, These things saith he which has the sharp sword with two edges. The sharp sword with two edges is symbolic of the Word of God. Jesus is saying, I've got the Word of God. That's what you need. But you have departed from the Word and you're going in the wrong direction. Verse 13, Jesus said, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. 
and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. He said to this church, like he did to every single one of the other churches, he said, I know your works. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. He knows where your shortcomings are at. He knows where the strongholds are at, as he said here. I know where Satan's seat is. He knows. He also knows those that are faithful. But he said, Thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Now, I know I have mentioned this before, but I want to bring it up again. He said, You hold fast to my name. The Lord's name is Jesus, which means Savior. Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed. The anointed Savior. Jesus is the Savior of mankind, not because He was born of the Virgin Mary, although He was. Jesus is not the anointed Savior because He lived a perfect life, although He did. He is the Savior because he went to Calvary's cross and shed his blood for you and I. And he rose from the dead on the third day. Jesus Christ, he said, you hold fast to my name and have not denied my faith. That's not talking about any faith that Jesus has. Because Jesus really didn't need any faith. But when he said, you've not denied my faith, he's referring to faith in what he did at Calvary's cross. You've not denied my faith. You've not denied what I did for you on the cross. Then he said, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Notice the little phrase there, even in those days. This is going back in time a little bit. This particular church went through some persecution and this man Antipas stood up for the Lord and was a faithful martyr. Move down, if you will, to verse 14. He said, I have a few things against thee because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. In the book of Numbers, chapters 22, 23, I think on over into 24, we have the story of the children of Israel coming into the promised land, God said, wipe out everything, the land is yours, I'll be with you, you just step out and conquer these nations and I'll be with you. And that's what the children of Israel are doing. And they had encamped in a valley over against the king of uh, Balak, 
And when Balak saw all of these thousands of Israelites gathered there in the valley, he got scared. He said, I got to do something. Don't, they're going to come in here and they're going to destroy my, my city and my people. So he goes to this man by the name of Balaam. Bible scholars argue over this. Who was Balaam? Was he really a prophet of God and lost his way? Was he a soothsayer? Was he a wizard or just what exactly was Balaam? All we know is what the scripture tells us. I think, this is my personal opinion, I think Balaam was on the right track. Because when Balak sent his henchmen to the house of Balaam, Balaam prayed to the Lord and the Lord said, You don't go with these guys. Have nothing to do with them. So he sends them on their way, but then Balak sends another group to his house and offers him a lot of money and honor and power and prestige. If you will come and curse these people for me, I'll give you a high position. I'll give you so much money. You'll be driving the finest Cadillac next week and, and you know, everything will be hunky-dory. And Balaam prays to the Lord again, and the Lord said, don't go. If they come to you in the morning, you go with them. But other than that, don't go with them. Well, the next morning, Balaam's up before the sun rises, got his bags packed, sitting on his donkey, ready to go. Well, that angered God. God sent an angel. Balaam didn't see that angel, but the old donkey did. And they're riding around this ledge, and the angel's standing there, and the donkey saw him. Balaam didn't see him, and the donkey goes into the side of the mountain and crushes his foot. And he gets mad and goes to beating his donkey. And then uh, later on, this angel came again, and the donkey goes all out of the way, and Balaam gets off, and he's beating his donkey again, and the donkey goes to talking to him. And Balaam's got sense enough to stand there and talk back to the donkey. I'd been running. <laughs> running to the medicine cabinet or something. I'm having a breakdown or something. This donkey's standing here <laughs> talking to me. But Balak takes Balaam up to a mountain, and he overlooks the children of Israel scattered there. Curse me these people, and he tells Balaam, uh, Balak, build uh, seven altars and get seven bullocks and so on and so forth. Offers up all these sacrifices. Balaam goes and talks to the Lord, and the Lord said, no, you can't curse these people. I blessed them, and you can't curse them. So he comes back and he tells Balak, Balak ain't happy. Well, come over here to this mountain. Maybe you can curse them over here. So we go through the same ordeal again. And God said, no, I bless these people. You can't curse them. Well, this happens three times. In the very next chapter over, I think it's Numbers 24, maybe 25. 
we see where the children of Israel are committing fornication with the children of Moab. Which thing they shouldn't have done because God had forbidden the intermarriage with other nations. Why were they doing this? We find out later on, when you read in the scriptures, that Balaam taught Balak, said, look, I can't curse these people, but here's what you do. If you get them to sin, they'll automatically be a curse on them. So he told Balak, send your daughters in there and entice them to intermarry and commit fornication, God's going to get angry and judgment will come down on the place. And that's how you can get to them. The doctrine of Balaam. It was an enticement away from the truth to something else. Pulling you away from what you need to be doing. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. Now tying all of that in, these people during this time period accepted what Constantine said above what God's word said. And that's the problem. No matter what it is, when you embrace it more than God's word, you got a problem. A real problem. Uh, Verse 15, the Lord says something else there. He said, you have them also that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Bible commentators say this and say that and give all kind of speculation as to what that group of people were. But in the Greek, I'm going to give you the two words. The word Nicolaitans is made up of two words. Nikeo means to conquer. And laos means laity, or the people. In other words, you have the laity conquerors. And what is that? It's preachers that take advantage or authority over the people. And I, let's put it this way, I come in here and I say, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and go on and so on and so forth. And I command everybody in here that you're going to give so much money. That's what was going on. Actually, this period of time, this 200-year period of time, it set the stage for what we know today as the Catholic Church. The Nicolaitans. They appointed their own bishops, made up their own rules and regulations, and completely departed from the Word of God. And Jesus said, this is the thing that I hate. Whatever is not according to the Word of God... Jesus hates it. Mark it down. Verse 16. 
Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. The Word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts two ways. To those of us that are saved, it is a sword of blessing. But for those that are not saved, it is a sword of condemnation. It is a sword that can take you up, or it is a sword that can take you down. It depends on your decision. But he said, I'll fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In other words, he's going to bring the sword of judgment against these people. Verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That word manna is used in the Old Testament. When the children of Israel were out in the desert and didn't have anything to eat, God caused, when the children of Israel got up in the morning time, they saw this white wafer-looking thing laying on the dew of the ground. It was a type of the Word of God. Jesus said, I am that manna that came down from heaven. He said, I am the bread of life. Bread, manna, all of these words are synonymous. But he says, if you overcome, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. In other words, what he is saying is, if you'll turn back to me in my word, I'll show you the great truths contained in my word. Then he said, I will give him a white stone. A white stone. Back in those days, in ancient times, when a jury would gather and a case was tried, each one of the jurors would get a white and a black stone. And when the case was heard, each one of the jurors would cast their vote with either the white or the black stone. The white stone meant that the person in question was innocent of whatever charges were being presented. The black stone, of course, meant that that juror thought that they were guilty of those charges. Jesus said, I will give to you a white stone. Not guilty. To him that overcometh, I will give you a white stone. A judgment, a verdict of not Guilty. I don't care what you've done. Your sins could reach from here to the moon and back. But when God looks at you, he says not guilty because your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life and you have put your faith in Christ and what he did at Calvary. I will give to him a white stone. Then he said, And in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. It was a custom in Asia to give an intimate friend the tessera. Y'all, what in the world is that? It is a white stone or a piece of ivory. And in it would be carved a symbol or a name. And it was very 
personal to you and whomever it was that give it to you. And Jesus is saying here, I'll give you a stone with a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. That speaks of relationship. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. A relationship with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, the Lord's going to give us a white stone. And it's going to have something special wrote on it. I don't know what it's going to say. You'll know what it says. And you'll know what it means. And it's going to be something very special to you. If the program today has been a blessing to you, we hope and pray that you'll share it with others. This podcast has been made possible by the prayerful and generous financial support of listeners like you to contact us or to contribute to this ministry. Go to establishedinthefaith.com, click on the Donate tab. All donations are safe and secure through PayPal. We look forward to hearing from you.